Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the November 2014 edition of Ask a Voter. Well, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've bonded with about everyone who's endured this protracted lap of dark money, financed electoral process. I, I tried to weigh in all the leaflets that I got in the mail, which were, they were increasingly, they saved the best for last with the most disingenuous uh, bizarre kind of claim. So um, anyway, I'm bonded with all of you. Some of you have been enduring uh, maybe more the uh, the television kind of bombardment. I I actually don't really watch a television. I'm uh, Of course, I, I give it up to radio. So today on Ask a Leader, we're in for a treat with today's voter lineup and with a special analyst, Ask a Leader uh, com- becomes Ask a Voter 2014 as we check in with Vicki Ruiz, UCI's Chair of Latino Studies, Susan Savory, a congressional candidate, Sue Jones, a water quality program manager. I was hoping for another um, another person who just repatriated from Arizona, from uh, Argentina, <laughs> not quite Republic of Arizona, and uh, uh, he was not available. He's been doing too many good things in and out of the country. So uh, we'll get him the next election cycle. So and then we'll wrap that. We'll start up though with UCI political scientist Louis Decipio to provide analysis on national trends playing out on this very election day. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short station break. Before we bring on the good Louis DeCipio, I just want to remind every listener today that we are in the middle of the KUCI Fun Drive. And I want to say, if a picture is worth a thousand words, I want listeners to tell me what you think in terms of a pledge value. What is an interview worth to hear a candidate that you don't even read about to much uh, extent? What uh, is an interview worth where you can hear the way in which somebody says something, what they're actually saying, and it gives you a much clearer idea than just waiting for a 7 by 9 hard stock mailer that has nothing to do with what's real. So think about that when you call 949-824-5824 with your contribution to Radio KUCI, or you can go online at KUCI.org. Let's bring on the good Louis DeCipio now. He is UCI political professor. Louis covered the trends. Among them, the impact of dark money, the dynamic uh, voter registration requirements, and what messages are the voters sending during this election cycle. He is a political science department and Chicano Latino studies affiliated faculty and also is a contributor to the Center for Democracy and whom you may have also heard on various national public radio outlets, lots of them. His interests are ethnic politics, Latino politics, immigration, naturalization, U.S. electoral politics. Among his many publications are Building America, One Person at a Time, Naturalization and Political Behavior of the Naturalized Contemporary Use Politics. Louis DeCipio earned his B.A. at Columbia, master's Ph.D. at the University of Texas at Austin. And maybe he'll even say a little bit about Austin. I just learned about those congressional, the, the gerrymandered districts there. That it was just what a slate of hand for a state legislature to draw them up. That He might say that something about that, too. But now let's just welcome him on to ask a voter. Louis, welcome back to the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Do you 
remember when uh, Austin first got divvied up into those six uh, congressional districts that spoke away from the city center, all the way to some of them 250 miles out? Yeah, I wasn't living there then, but, it, right. but it's a it's a masterful gerrymand in that uh, there's a point somewhere off of Congress Avenue where all of the districts come together, um, and it ah. ensured that you know what would have probably been two Democratic seats um, only ended up being one Democratic seat. I thought there were none at this point, and everything I know is from a info entertainment um, faux political coverage on a certain cable program, but it taught me a lot. And they said there isn't one single district now. Solely oh, no, within the one that goes to the south, which pulls in some of San Antonio, pretty much had to be Democratic. Oh. Um, uh, you know, the, that was unavoidable. Oh, maybe they um, skipped But that. if they had done it, you know, as they had done it every previous redistricting, you probably would have had two. Um, you also have sort of a diminishment of the intellectual power of Austin. I don't mean that in terms of the university. I just mean that, you know, it is a vibrant entrepreneurial city, and none of the districts fully represent the people of Austin. Instead, they have some people in Austin and then a lot of people in rural areas, or, as I say, this one seat that goes to the south um, does pull in some of San Antonio. Okay. Well, that that was a, even an additional topic from what I was setting up, and I realized that from your bio that what we had to bring up Austin, after all. So keeping it weird and keeping it Republican, I guess, is sort of what the, the two uh, polar opposites are, are, are managing to pull off. Well, let's talk about the impact of dark money. And there are, I don't know, would you consider it as partisan politics go? Do you see dark money as a symmetrical contribution or is it a bit lopsided with um, who has more money to burn in uh, these sort of under the wire, under the radar kinds of contributions? Well, in this cycle, because the Republicans are a lot more energized, um, they probably have an advantage. That said, in a presidential year in which there's, you know, uh, sort of organization in the center and left, uh, I don't know that they're necessarily um, asymmetrical. This year, it's it's certainly a Republican advantage in terms of the dark money as well as the, the public money as well. Um, that said, you know, most of that money is being spent in um, states where the Republicans probably had an advantage anyway, so they're using resources to cement their advantage. What's been a little bit disturbing to me is in the last couple of weeks, I think, realizing that a number of those competitive uh, Senate races are won. Uh, they've been dumping some of the dark money or you know, dumping money generally, including the dark money, into some congressional races, and that might have, have some effect. And with that, there, does the dark money set a different kind of rhythm for the influence, uh, influencing the outcome? I'm not sure that it it has a difference on influencing the outcome. Where the, it has a different, it, it has a potentially different effect on influencing the legislation that comes down the road. Since it's not, um, there isn't a clear connection between the contributor and the and the recipient. Um, you know, in 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 this race, even including those congressional races where more money has gone in the last couple of weeks. The, the dark money is just reinforcing a lot of money coming from the, you know, the national campaign committees and individual contributors. So it's not really uh, doing what's not being done anyway. Um, the challenge, though, will be down the road as some of these folks are elected to office, often as, as, for, you know, as freshmen or, or first-year office holders, um, where they're sort of desperately looking to get their feet in, into the activities of Congress. They will, by nature, be looking to ensure their next reelection, and the way to do that is to satisfy their funders. And they do. Then, speaking of satisfy their funders, then there's the connection, the extent to which coordination is occurring with the 501c4 um, organizations and the actual candidates' campaigns. And Mary Jo White, the Securities and um, Economic Commission um, 
commissioner uh, appointed by the president has decided to stand, to leave it alone. Um, were you surprised with her non-action on uh, administering this kind of um, overseeing, uh, the checking whether the, there is coordination in these um, out-of-party contributions? Well, you know, technically that, that responsibility sits with the Federal Election Commission, which has not been able to uh, achieve a, a quorum um, because of congressional inaction for a number of years now. So, and, you know, and reinforcing that is a Supreme Court that's clearly moving away from campaign finance regulation. So uh, I guess I'm not terribly surprised. Certainly the ethos right now is one of, uh, uh, you know, of confusion because the, the law is changing very quickly. You know, there have been some major court rulings about this just since the last election cycle. Um, you know, it's... Uh, the, the the legal foundation of campaign finance regulation is very unclear right now, and it's hard for administrators to act when they don't have a clear legal foundation. And, Lewis, I meant to say Mary Jo White, uh, not Mary yep. Jo Smith, excuse me. Um, and so you're referring to the McCutcheon decision that opened yep, up uh, how much anyone, uh, there there's essentially no limit now to what a, a contribution can be made to uh, any any and all candidates around the country. It just, it's, there's no cap. Yeah, and, and, and McCutcheon, you know, and, and there are better people on campus to talk about this. In fact, I've been on your show with one of them. But, That's uh, right. Uh, you know, the, Rick Kaysen. Um, the, you know, the, McCutcheon is just representative of a series of rulings that have gutted the post-Watergate campaign finance regime that had been in place for, for 40 years or yeah, 40 years. So, you know, right. it's the, the courts certainly, it seems like whenever they get a new opportunity to undermine some aspect of campaign finance, they do, or at least this court does. Um, that That's not a solid legal fact. You know, the administrator, the, the FEC, for example, the Federal Election Commission, just isn't in a position to act right now because it doesn't have a clear legal foundation as to what it's supposed to do, let alone the fact that it doesn't even have a, a quorum to act because Congress won't, won't uh, um, ratify or won't... Uh, um, uh, appoint well, new uh, new members. Okay, so that's a form of legislation, then, folks. <laughs> yeah, right. L- letting it stand uh, un uncodified, so that there uh, there isn't any kind of oversight of of that. So then, I'd I'd like to think about the looking at the dark money, and looking at the increasing sophistication of data mining. Now, uh, it was certainly. Uh, David Pluff was able to really set a new gold standard in 2008 in the Obama presidential campaign, and the Republicans are also dialing it up with this data mining. Louis DiCipio, let your mind, uh, if, I mean, I know how, uh, uh, pre- uh, how very carefully you uh, express yourself and all, but let your mind roll with what uh, this collision course of this data mining and all this dark money, what will it do to us being tracked? And uh, and we're uh, to an all I mean almost an, a manipulation of our electoral con- uh, sort of participation. <laughs> well, I you know I I don't know that I I would agree that it's manipulation necessarily since part of what data mining is supposed to do is identify potential voters who don't turn out, and that's what the Obama folks were really successful at in doing in way. 2008 and right. 2012. Right. Um, certainly the Republicans are saying they're doing it this time. They, the proof will be in the pudding. They've said that before, and it, it hasn't really turned out. You know, they're, they're likely voters actually generally turn out, so they don't need to do it as much. Um, the, the, the challenge for me isn't, I, I think, and here I'm probably not 
letting my mind wander, but I think it's going to happen. So the question is how, if it's a reality, how that can be used to advance the democracy. And my concern is always that those technologies are used in close races, um, as they should be, because that's, you know, that's where you're going to waste money. Um, but they're never used in states that don't have competitive races. So states, you know, like California, New York, um, Texas, that simply, you know, that where the outcome is predetermined in almost all cases, they never see those technologies being used. And as a result, marginal voters, new voters, young voters in those states don't benefit from the mobilization potential of data mining, of, you know, of targeted messaging and such. I mean, that's a real problem. You know, I I study Latinos. Well, over half of the Latino population lives in just two of those states, California and Texas, and they never benefit from that kind of, uh, you know, intensive outreach that, that, uh, that, uh, Partisans and, and such in, in Ohio and North Carolina and, you know, the battleground states and the presidential have experienced repeatedly. And I think over time that's going to create sort of two tiers of um, potential voters, you know, ones that are routinely mobilized and generally turn out even if they're not asked to, because all the evidence is if you turn out a couple times, then it becomes a routine. Um, and those that are never asked and, and never turn, or, you know, turn out at much lower rate. So, so I guess my concern isn't the data mining. My concern is that it's used inequitably. So I guess... Here, if I'm dreaming, what I would see would be nonpartisan groups using similar kinds of technologies uh, to turn people out in states where it doesn't really matter in that election, but it might in the next election. Well, maybe they are. Maybe uh, William Steyer and George Soros and uh, the Koch brothers, maybe they're all, uh, maybe they're going down that path now. And, And like you said, the proof is in some of the pudding that's served up here. In 2014, yeah. the, the states I'm going to be particularly looking at tonight, in terms of that, Ohio? are Colorado, Colorado. where uh, incumbent Mark Udall has been behind for the last couple of months. But if he is successful at turning out largely Latino voters, some African American voters, he can, you know, pull out sort of a surprise. Doesn't seem like it's happening based on the early votes, but you know, it could. Um, the other would be North Carolina, um, and this will get into your question about the effect of uh, some of the new ballot restrictions. Um, but, you know, North Carolina is a state that uh, in 2008 went, went for Obama, much to everybody's surprise. 2012 went for Romney. But with a sizable youth and African-American turnout, um, you know, can be in the Democratic camp. And it looks like at the moment at least Kay Hagan, the incumbent senator, is, is holding on. I mean, all of these polls are sort of in flux at the moment. But there, you know, you, you, you see the effect, the positive effects, I think, of very focused kinds of turnout strategies, but also the potential negative effects of what's acknowledged to be the most restrictive ballot access rules in the country now. Well, for those of you who've uh, joined, just joined us, here on at the Ask a Voter edition of Ask a Leader is my guest UCI political science professor, Louis DiCipio, analyzing the national trends. And I want to pitch one more time for this moment our fall fund drive at KUCI 949-824-5824. You can get Louis DiCipio on NPR, but he gets maybe what you get, Louis. You get three or four minutes, but on our community radio station, you get almost a, well, I'm not sure how much time we're going to give Louis today, as much as I can, uh, in the time it takes to cover all these trends in a in a shorter order. It's not as long. He will probably take every trend and make that one lecture in, in his courses. But So I, I want you to call us at 949-824-5824 or go to our website at KUCI.org. We've got the PayPal account set up and you can make a contribution and starting with $35 and up, there are premiums to thank you for your contribution. 
uh, lovely ways that commemorate the 45th anniversary um, at, at $45 and up. And if you want, you can uh, contribute $100 and sit in this studio, and you can interview Louis DiCipio or any other guest you'd like to work out an interview with me. I'd be, be, gladly take that contribution and make that interview happen. And so, as I said, Louis DiCipio here is analyzing the trends, and we're talking about dark money, and everybody knows by now what the dark money is. And uh, it's the 501c4, which I, I talked with a, a local political operative about why his um, Irvine Cares was set up as a 501c4. He's a, a, law, a Berkeley Law School graduate, a veteran legislator, and he didn't want to answer why 501c4. He wanted to defer to his attorneys, and so I thought, wow, it is dark money. <laughs> like, people don't even want to talk about how dark it is by not telling you what's how to distinguish it from a 501c3. But it's so, um, and the, 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 the reason it's dark is, folks, well, let's let, let's let Lewis just unpackage it in the most, uh, in, in, in the community radio terms that you get to. Not, this is not a, a lecture hall, so just run with that. Fair enough. Well, I mean, I, I'm not a lawyer, I should say, so my understanding is that of how to apply these things rather than, than technicalities, and that, that might be why the, the Berkeley Law grad was a little hesitant. Um, a 501c3 is set up uh, to work um, to, to inform the public, but not to take specific positions on issues before legislative bodies or executive agencies. A 501c4, um, and they, these are their their line in the tax code um, can, in fact, take positions on specific issues and lobby or advocate. Um, in, in the Supreme Court, however, has, as it has steadily expanded access uh, or steadily expanded ways in which individuals can fund, individuals and corporations, for that matter, can fund um, candidates, has uh, interpreted the law in such a way that a 501c4, which is nominally an independent organization, it's not set up explicitly by the campaign, um, can be used as a way to funnel money to advocate for a specific um, uh, candidate by talking about issues. Um, so, you know, so that's the distinction um, and why the, the sort of current way to fund candidates without giving money directly to candidates is to use 501c, Section 501c4 of the tax code um, for issue advocacy. Um, and, and this is at least nominally unlimited. I mean, I guess it's, it's functionally limited by how much money you have, but it's, you know, where the, the old caps that existed on individual campaign contributions limited what you could directly give to a candidate. You can give, you know, if you're the Koch brothers, uh, a million dollars to, or a billion dollars to a 501c4, and it can advocate. And, and you know, there, there are 501c4s on the left as well. There, there are. You know, I think that Patriot Majority USA, I had not heard about them until I was preparing for this interview. I, so I, have you ever heard of Patriot Majority USA? No, I have not. So that, that's one 501c4. So, and I don't know. I didn't look up to see how much money they're spending, but it's if they're dark, they're spending a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I don't know if they're necessarily – some are spending a lot and some are spending – you know, you can have 501c4s in local races as right well on. getting involved. We have them in Irvine. And, and, and the issue is not – that they're, they're using that section of the tax code. The issue is that the money is not publicly disclosed as being, you know, as working for or against a candidate. And, and that's the challenge in the democracy, because, you know, if, until we have a system of full public financing, there's going to be money going into campaigns. 
the what we've always had in the past is, or since Watergate at least, has been some relationship between the money that is going in and the public accountability for right. that spending, and we don't have that anymore. So, with that, we can seg into the message. It's been a very negative haul. It is a what we are not or what they are in a negative way. So the voters are now saddled with what is the message they are giving back to in this electoral process. Louis DeCipio, what do you think are the messages that voters are expressing in from the from the most general kind of what matters to them and what's their disposition? Is is there a chance that there is a message or is it it has it become so negative that it's uh, it's un it's indecipherable or it's it's a it's a null set. I think it's a message of frustration, and it's a message of frustration that's coming certainly more from the right than the left, but you hear it on the left as well. And this isn't all that unusual. I mean, we're in the sixth year of a presidential term, um, a presidential term that was characterized by some major accomplishments in its first two years, and then um, uh, you know stalemate in Washington for the you know for the next four. So you know, I think people are looking for an alternative, and you know we see that that search for the alternative being quite broad. I mean, the Tea Party on the right, uh, uh, some arguments about economic democracy on the left, um, you know, new faces in in the middle. Um, And, you know, in this, it's not all that different than previous six-year in a presidential terms, with the exception of the one that most people remember, which is Bill Clinton. And the Republicans messed that one up by by trying to impeach him, which gave Clinton the ability to make it into a a national referendum on his presidency. But George Bush faced this in um, in 2006. Uh, Ronald Reagan faced it in 1986. Um, You know, I think people are really just looking to looking for alternatives, and no alternative is going to be able to get beyond you know get enough support in order to affect policy too dramatically. Um, you know, the president, assuming the Republicans take control of the Senate, the president will be able to veto, he'll start using his veto pen a little bit more. Um, even in the Senate, you know, there's already evidence of a division, you know, between the Tea Party folks and, and the sort of mainstream Republicans. Uh, you know, so it's not like uh, um, speak, or, uh, um, uh, Senator McConnell will he'll be able to achieve his goal. The House has been divided for the last six, four years. Nobody's really paid much attention, but, you know, it's not like uh, the um, Speaker Boehner has been able to achieve his legislative objective. Not so, even close. you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, we're in a, in a transition period, and the transition to what is on everybody's mind. Okay. Well, that um, that's a lot. Uh, that's a large uh, question to try to close it out on. I have a couple of voters. I need to uh, find out under what's underneath their hood in terms of their voting backgrounds, and I will uh, head over to them shortly. Louis DeCipio, it's kind of you to give us the whole open-ended uh, time frame that the show is uh, on this kind of a day. Thank you very much for being on uh, Ask a Voter today. Take care. All the best to you. Thank you very much. Good luck. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, I'm going to be back in just a bit with, uh, we're going to bring on Vicki Ruiz shortly. So stay tuned. We'll be right back.
Thank you, everybody, for staying tuned. This is the next uh, guest here on Ask a Voter, the November 2014 edition, and it's my pleasure to bring back to my program Professor Vicki Ruiz, who will start off our time-honored election show coverage of Ask a Voter, as I was saying, about their voting history and why they are voting today. Professor Vicki Reese is the Chicano Latino Studies Chair and professor, History Professor studying and telling the historical accounts of Latino women as they fought for civil and labor rights. I'm going to whiz through this uh, lovely bio, just cut to the chase. She had served as Dean of Humanities from 2008 to 2012 after joining UCI b- the beginning of 2001. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Vicki Ruiz. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have you. I want to shoot over the questions that I love to do on my Ask a Voter edition. And it's I know you have a, a lovely background on this, and we all need to hear that. So, Vicki Ruiz, tell us when you first registered to vote and what were the circumstances around that? Well, I registered to vote in 1976. Uh, I was an undergraduate at Florida State University and had the, uh, and you know, big shock. I was involved with the history club. <laughs> and, shocking, shocking. And we uh, took a field trip to Plains, Georgia. And it was sort of the summer, late spring, early summer of 1976. And we had hoped to catch a glimpse of the president of the Democratic presidential contender, Jimmy Carter. Well, we entered planes, and of course, Carter was not uh, in town. Uh, but his mother, uh, Miss Lillian, was entertaining um, visitors. And I remember that she spent about 30 minutes with us. I remember we sort of sat on the floor, she sat in this big chair. And she began to regale us uh, with tales about her Jimmy. Uh, and the, the I don't remember the stories, but the stories she told, I do remember the tone of uh, maternal love and pride in her son. Okay. Okay. So, and that's, and this is a Peace Corps worker, right? That was her, um, that's what we mm-hmm. all knew and loved about her. Yes. So she. Uh, yes. Oh, that's wonderful. That's just wonderful. I didn't know. She, I, was, she was a great politician. What can I say? She, uh, she, she was. She was. So were, were people, how were people voting? Um, I mean, was it, did it look oh, to be we an energized? All, I think, you know, we were, the, the group were pretty, you know, already predisposed toward Carter, but it was like, oh, my goodness, you know, we met, you know, we thought, oh, we've got to vote because we, we may have met the, the mother of a future president. And Plains, it was such an economic boost to that little town because that town was, you know, filled with all sorts of sort of those or souvenirs one could take home uh, about the Carter presidency. Okay. All right. Well, the next question, and uh, as we mm-hmm. give you your due here, is, Vicki Ruiz, why are you voting today? I think it's our responsibility uh, as citizens to vote. I mean, we have a we have a responsibility, and it's a privilege, and we should uh, exercise uh, that privilege. And to me, you know, you really can't complain if you don't go to the. You really can't complain if you couldn't find the time to go to the ballot box. Okay, and uh, are you going to um, 
uh, have you made a point of saying to your students that you're mentoring, you're, you're famous for your mentoring uh, for so many people around the campus and all over the country, various organizations uh, and uh, where, where you're affiliated. But um, are you uh, pitching the message about uh, getting students to turn out? Well, I just said it's, it's their responsibility. Okay. And that, that they, you know, that, you know, I don't, it's, it's one of those things where I said it's, it's such a privilege that we need to exercise the privilege and, you know, study the candidates. It's not just merely going and just, you know, voting one ticket up or down, but, but really study, you know, what, what the issues are. Well, I know I, I'm pretty energized. I, I was thinking, uh, Today, uh, last night, it was herbal tea was keeping me up last night. So it must be electoral season. With the, I get lots of calls. You do get do people call you for uh, uh, pointers on their ballot with the, the measures no. which have been very complicated this year. No, no, no. They leave you alone. No, but but I will have to say that I yes. think it's very funny is that a uh, uh, friend and colleague in political science, Louis Decipio, this is his Super Bowl. Yes, I it mean, is. He is. He was just he, on. He's just excited about it, as many people do about supporting this. Okay, good, good. Well, he was just on, and we, we try. I gave him a little uh, extra time for considering how many voters I needed to queue up here today. So yes, it's a, uh, I, I, it's my Super Bowl too. And uh, I, mm-hmm. without a PhD in poli science, it's it's just mm-hmm. since uh, my uh, being active since I was fifteen, and I dare say you were probably active about that time first for the first time uh, yourself so it, yeah super bowl it is i'll i'll, I'll join him I'll, I'll bring nachos to uh what the screen where i think he's watching us and uh see we can uh, uh i don't think we're, we're going to put bets on it that would be uh, that wouldn't i don't think well i guess there might be paramutual betting on uh politics i'll have to i'll ask I'll, i haven't thought about that so well uh, people that are dark money financiers i think they're the ones that are doing all the betting mm-hmm. so well, well, thank you. I'm so glad that you could be on the show. Did you have any parting shots for the, the voters, especially anteaters out there, besides what you've already said about this privilege of voting, Vicki Ruiz? Uh, study the issues. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thank you for being on the show. Vicki Ruiz, she is the Latino and uh, Chicano Studies Chair History Professor, telling it like it is today on November 4, 2014. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you. All right, we're going to bring up uh, Ms. Sue Savory, the Democratic challenger to incumbent Dana Rohrbacher, in just a few minutes. Be right back. Thanks for everybody staying with us. Uh, I couldn't resist. That's Philip Glass's uh, version of David Bowie's Heroes. Just a painting it patriotic. What can I say? So our uh, next guest and uh, the second to last voter on Voter Ask a Voter edition today is Dr. Suzanne Savory, a Democrat challenging the incumbent of the 48th Congressional District, Dana Rohrbacher. Suzanne Savory is a retired professor of management communication from the Marshall School of Business at USC. She has been the CEO of her own management consulting firm, specializing in turnarounds for companies uh, that, uh, as, as she says, I, I, it's not my uh, modifier, it's uh, what she says in her own bio, that's, that companies have been paralyzed by resistance to change. She might say something about that. Certainly, there is a an institution in D.C. that's sort of paralyzed uh, in, a, in, a, in another way. So, 
Sue Savory is the founder and president of the Newport Beach Women's Democratic Club, was appointed to the city council to be member of the 2012 Newport Beach Charter Commission, and organized the Orange County Women's Coalition to protect women's rights uh, from the the merger, what the, the outcome of the merger of Hogue Hospital with St. Joseph's Systems. I welcome her uh, onto the show for the first time uh, to ask this Ask a Vote edition. Welcome, Suzanne Savory. Oh, yes, Claudia. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here, and thank you for hosting such an important show on this very historic day, as all election days are. Well, we do this traditionally here uh, on uh, this Ask a Leader show, and I, as I was trying to say in my fun drive, if... Uh, and I'm going to let you, I'm not saying you have to pitch the radio fund drive yourself, but I just would like for your measure, if a picture is worth a thousand words, and we can see that in politics where there is a photograph, a photo opportunity, if a picture is worth a thousand words, what do you think an interview is worth? How many words? Well, I think it's absolutely extraordinary. It's the ability to have the voter actually hear what the uh, candidate is saying, and you don't get that from a picture. You get, you imagine what you uh, think you uh, can tell about a person from a picture, but to actually hear that that individual talk, hear how they frame the world, uh, that's extraordinarily important, and I think more and more important in today's media world where there's so much coming at us, but in such little disjointed bits and pieces. So um, to me, uh, the radio show is a way to cut through all the clutter, and uh, I deeply appreciate the uh, time and energy people like yourself put into trying to share with the public and with uh, your um, listeners um, the, the complexity of, of the world. And maybe that's really my answer is that while a picture gives you one impression, being able to understand and hear what people have to say um, goes uh, gives everyone an opportunity to realize that the world isn't simple, nothing's particularly clean, there's complexity, and you have to think below the obvious in order to be a good a good citizen. Well, thank you for that endorsement <laughs> of uh, uh, the me- radio medium, and uh, it's just in time. I may I may put that into some kind of a, 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 a spot <laughs> here for our fun drive here later on. But so anyway, before we go into our classic voter questions, would you tell us a little bit about the 48th district? The maps changed since the last general election. Are our voters are they catching on to where they belong, and that they're they're which is their incumbent in this cycle? Or are you finding that out from your uh, campaigning? Well, this district is very different right now than it was right. even several years ago um, when my opponent, Dana Rohrabacher, first took office 25 years ago. The district, the bottom of the district, ended at the bottom of Huntington Beach and went all the way up through Long Beach, the port, uh, Palos Verdes. Now it starts at Seal Beach, so the top of Seal Beach, and then it goes right down the coast to Huntington Beach adds Newport Beach, uh, Laguna Beach, Elisa Viejo, uh, Laguna Nigel, and then if you come back up, almost going out just to the 405, um, then you pick up Costa Mesa, Westminster, uh, Midway City. Uh, So it's a giant swath pretty much from the 405 to the coast, from Seal Beach down to the bottom of Laguna Nigel, so just above Dana Point. That means that in 2012, when the district was reconfigured, um, a good many people didn't even know they were voting for Dana Rohrabacher, and many, many uh, tell me that that's the case. They still thought that they had Campbell as their 
uh, congressperson until they got into the polling places. And only in the past two years have they had a chance to look at this man and his absolutely terrible record on human rights, on the environment, on climate change, on um, women particularly, voted against the Violence Against Women Act. How do you do that? Voted against the equal pay for equal work. I mean, you know, bottom line, these are, these are positions that most of the voters, when we just let them know his record, wants vouchers instead of Social Security, thereby taking away the, the, um, the security that seniors have. Does, he voted several times to not help Elizabeth Warren give students an opportunity to reduce the impact that their uh, heavy, heavy burden of tuition is having on them. You know, the research is horrifying. What happens when students graduate with very heavy um, loans due to um, their, uh, their tuition debt is they don't go out and um, start new businesses. New businesses, small and mid-sized businesses created by those very young people, part of the work I did at USC was to teach entrepreneurs how to go get investments. Well, these young people are walking out with so much debt on their shoulders that they're having a very difficult time getting, securing the kind of money it takes to start a business. Entrepreneurship and innovation is the absolute economic engine of this country, and we are just stabbing it in the back by our um, almost Neanderthal approach to our own young people. And I tell people probably the best piece of legislation that I've ever seen in this country and the best investment this country ever made was something called the GI Bill. And what the GI Bill uh, basically did, as I'm sure you're, you're well aware, um, is to um, give an entire generation the education that they needed to get two major generations of prosperity out of it. Well, that was a, an, a, an amazing seg from a boundary to a, a congressional district and picking up the, all your demographics. I, that, that was a tour de force, I must say. Well, so <laughs> for, You're catching me on a day I'm pretty practiced yeah, by yeah, now. Well, it, well <laughs> I, I understand. I'm wrapping that all in there. So on our show, we'd like to ask new guests uh, who haven't been asked this before. I'd like to know, Suzanne Savory, is where, what were the circumstances and when uh, did you first register to vote? You brought me back to a time that was really instrumental in not just my life, but the, but the life of my country. Um, I first voted in the 1968 election. I was wow. in college at the time. I got married that summer. Um, and so it was a little extraordinary uh, journey for me in uh, my memory lane this morning, just looking back at that era. We had just come off of the deaths of uh, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, who had been my favorite because I did feel that he could reach out to the angry uh, people on all sides, um, and he could bring us together, and the loss of him was one of the most devastating things um, that I think most people who were in my era um, had experienced in their lives, other than the loss of his brother. So um, 1968 was a year of excruciating um, challenge and pain. Americans were pitted against Americans. Um, this thing we have going in Congress right now horrifies me because 
that's a memory we all had from that era. So voting was critical. Uh, we had uh, fellows that I went to high school and college with were going off to war. They were drafted, folks. They for were those drafted. Who don't know how that worked. There was a selective service system that was <laughs> taking the low numbers that were pulled out of the, the ball, and they were sending them. So that, Absolutely. So 68, oh, yeah. Nineteen sixty-eight, and it was the um, there were such strong feelings about what should happen in Vietnam, and of course, over time, pretty much the whole country came to the same conclusion that that was not the war we thought uh, anyone thought it was in the beginning. Um, so, just lots of trauma around that, and the fact that I could vote was almost a um, your prior guest said it was my duty. It was a an almost sacred duty, because people were dying for um, that opportunity. And these guys who were going over to the war zone were saying, I'm not old enough to uh, vote, but I'm old enough to die for my country. How can this be? And that really was the mantra of the time. That's why when the um, amendment to uh, drop the voting age to 18 was passed in 1970, during Richard Nixon's time, it was the, the general feeling of the whole country that we should not be sending young men to war who are not in the position of going to the voting booth. First. So yeah. uh, it, it really was extraordinary in terms of the sense of what a blessing it was to have this ability to vote, to make a difference in your country. And, um, uh, and it, so it really upsets me when I hear young people say, oh, they're all the same in Washington. First of all, that's not true, and a lot of money and time and energy was put into having those words come out of their mouths and then feel that they don't have um, a, a, any reason to go to the voting booths. And, um, you know, as a college professor, I love undergraduates. I, you know, I want to talk with them. I want them to be a part of this process. Um, but my political consultants kept saying, you can only spend as much time with a particular voter group as they spend voting. And when less wow. than 2% of the primary were young people voting, of course, the pressure is to keep the candidates with the people who do vote. So we've got to change that. We really do. And, and that's maybe why I, I just feel so strongly that what you're doing is such a service. Oh, well, well, thank you. So I guess you've answered the second question in uh, different ways throughout um, your appearance here. Is But I, what I like to follow it up is why are you voting today? And I, <laughs> I don't want you. I'm going to I'm going to buzz you if you uh, go on your stump. I want you to sort of tip tilt pivot away from. A uh, very classic refrain, but why are you voting today? Let's say Sue's Savory citizen as opposed to Sue Savory uh, cap- candidate. Right. Um, the reason I'm voting today is simply because I can, because I'm able to in the, in the core of my heart, not as a candidate, although what drove me into being a candidate was the same feeling that what's what causes this country to be the precious, precious uh, bastion of freedom that we still are is that vote, that ability to get out there and say, I, Sue Savory, make this decision about these people in leadership. Um, you know, as a consultant, I was always engaged in that question of who should be our leader. And I, 
sometimes am dismayed when I see our society turn the issue of a, an election into what seems like a football game. Um, it's not a game. It's not a sport. We shouldn't be taking sides. I don't really believe people should be R's or D's. I think that we need to elect our leaders and know the best person uh, for the job. And clearly, um, you know, that requires what your prior caller said, the hard work, looking at the person, finding out who they are, um, what kind of decisions have they made in their lives, how have they contributed to their society. So fundamentally, because I can, and my family has been in this country for 250 years, wow. we have lost people in many different aspects of wars to fight for exactly that. So I couldn't feel more strongly. I think it's absolutely critical that uh, any person you know, within hearing of this who doesn't go to the polls today or hasn't sent in a vote um, doesn't understand how critical that uh, um, ob obligation and duty is uh, for an American, especially right now when we've got so many things happening in our culture that are not consistent with who we are, not taking care of the middle class, not taking care of oh, there's a of stump. Family. There's a stump. Okay. Well, I thank you. I thank you for setting aside time. You could have you could have been just cooling your heels a little bit before checking out the <laughs> get out the vote efforts today. But it, you came to uh, to our station to uh, to appear. I want to thank you, Dr. Susan Savory, Democrat, challenging incumbent of the 48th Congressional District, Dana Roerbacher, here on this edition of Ask a Voter. Thanks for being on the show today. Oh, Dr. you're Savory. quite welcome. Okay. My pleasure. We'll be right back, folks. After a few minutes. Sue Jones from Madison, Wisconsin. Couldn't resist the personal theme there. Welcome back to Ask a Voter in this November 2014 edition. My last guest, we are dialing back to Madison, Wisconsin, back to Sue Jones for the installment of what is, uh, what's the governor up to? The last time she was on Ask a Voter, she was calling it in. It was our California primary 2012, and it was Governor Scott Walker's recall election she is back with us today to tap into, she is our woman on our, whoa, I'm sorry, on the scene today to cover what's happening on the ground. Sue Jones is a water quality program manager, and she's uh, recently graced the KUCI radio station with fellow Department of Urban Regional Planning alumni at a retreat in, in Orange County just this last month. Welcome back to Ask a Voter, Sue Jones. 
I'm happy to be back. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. Have you already voted yet in Madison? I have. I'm wearing my I Voted sticker right now. Okay. Ooh, this is the first time on uh, Community Radio on mine. I'm asking what somebody's wearing. This is a... (laughs) That, that is not where I thought we were headed, not especially with this guest, for goodness sake. So, well, what is um, what do we need to know before we go into the, my classic questions? What is the buzz? Uh, the What is the local Madison Press saying about uh, trends? We're not trying to be trendy. We just want to, but we do want a, a bit of insight about uh, what's what's the, um, what what is trending? Forget it. We do want to be trendy. <laughs> it's all about turnout. Um, the the race has been so close for so long. Um uh, Scott Walker um, survived a recall, uh, as you mentioned, a couple of years ago. And um, I, th- I think, you know, a lot of good-hearted people in Wisconsin just said, we don't believe a recall should be used for this purpose. Um, but, you know, there wasn't an outright crime that could be um, identified. But now it's been so close with an inspiring candidate, Mary Burke, um, and it's all about turnout. Um, I was out canvassing on Sunday, and um, there's just a nice buzz among the volunteers and uh, people who needed to know how to register. So uh, I am hopeful today. Um, and our conservative Wisconsin State Journal actually endorsed Mary Burke uh, just the other day. So that was very surprising and I think uh, a good sign. Wow. Did they say why? Um, that uh, Walker's um, obstinance and divide-and-conquer strategy has really put the state back, you know, with the um, the protests that resulted from that and just the, the bad government. Um, Wisconsin used to be known as a good government state. This is a totally bad government, midnight votes on things and divide-and-conquer. But that has really put the state behind in job creation. We've lost momentum. Uh, Mary Burke, with her experience in uh, private sector and uh, philanthropy, and, and just her demeanor is in a good position to, to bring us together as a state. Has WORT had her on? Radio I WORT? I know. I wonder. I mean, I, I, I hope that she's been so. on. Is that, that's the, the world's oldest radio tower. That's, uh, that's the call <laughs> numbers for the, the station there in Madison, and um, I, I hope she's been on there. So uh, but you can find out from management and see, and uh, maybe they give her some time there. So... Uh, Give a chance. A victory lap, I'm hoping. I've been asking, because this is in the middle of, folks, I'm going to do it while uh, Sue Jones is on. It, this is, and actually we got a contribution from Sue Jones, which I have to thank her publicly for very much. Thank you again, Sue. Uh, that In our fun drive, I've been asking to, on today's Ask a Voter show, that interviewing a candidate, how many words might that be worth in terms of how <laughs> it tells us? Well, uh, always fundamental, and, and the, the, the chance to have a one-on-one conversation, I, I think, is invaluable. It's beyond the spin, beyond the soundbite, beyond the photo op. Uh, what is that person um, um, at their core, and uh, how might they, they serve us in office? Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, it's a fun drive question, and then I make my station manager happy when we are, we're trying to do that. And it, he knows that this is the most important day of the year to me, and so when I have it colliding with the most important fun driving function that the station can perform, I'm, I'm straddled with a, a huge dilemma there. So, uh, any other um, kinds of uh, Madison, Wisconsin uh, state capital buzz going on before we go into the uh, questions of the Ask a Voter variety? Oh, just a lot of enthusiasm on, on folks who finally want to move the, the state forward. I mean, with, with my water quality background, uh, yes. ground, I'm especially concerned about um, the environmental record under Walker as well. And 
just looking at conservation citations alone, like hunting and fishing violations, they're down 30% over the last uh, few years under the Walker administration. And, um, you know, there have been failure to pursue actually human waste um, uh, disposal near drinking water wells and a couple of well-publicized cases here, too. So I, I think we need a change for the uh, health of our lands and waters in this state as well. And I think a lot of people are excited about that change. And the violations aren't down because there are fewer violations, is the, uh, is the inference I'm getting. Absolutely correct. The um, appointed secretary of the Department of Natural Resources, appointed by Scott Walker, is a home builder who is um, against uh, regulation and enforcement. Oh, wow. So, and so he's saving the state a ton of money by not enforcing it. But he's not because resource management takes money, requires money for oversight. And this is a state that relies heavily on tourism, and we welcome people here to enjoy our lakes and streams. And um, so this is harming um, an economic generator as well. Okay. There's a lot of skin, skin and many other things we could name that are in this game. So, Sue Jones, tell us a bit about how the circumstances around your first voting, when and what, where and all that kind of thing. Well, I was uh, 18 my freshman year at the university, and um, so I voted um, in the fall of 1976. So um, I uh, come from a a tradition of regular voters in uh, the Jones family, and so I was proud to become engaged in that way. And I've just noticed that we've gone way over our time, so I'm going to uh, ask you, I think you've already told us why you're voting today, but perhaps you have a a particular message to that particular general question. It's important for for citizens in this state and and everywhere to be engaged in the political life of our communities and of our country. Voting is a pivotal uh, way to do that, and um, I am particularly um, engaged this year and um, and excited about voting and hoping that others do as well because of the need for a dramatic change in our state. Well, I will wish you a high voter turnout so that the engagement speaks to um, people's commitment to how public policy affects them in their uh, working world, uh, in their recreating world, and I Wish wind in your sails to help get the vote out today. And Sue Jones, thank you very much for being on the show today. You're you're very welcome. And Thanks for your good wishes. Stay close uh, and let me. I, I'm. I, we'll we'll stay uh, close tonight and check in, and uh, I uh, will compare notes. So thanks again. Take care. Yep, bye now. Bye bye. That was my last guest on the Ask a Voter show, Sue Jones, water quality program manager in Madison, Wisconsin. Here on Ask a Voter. Uh, and eaters, this is your mother's voice imploring you to be sure to turn out and vote. If you have questions or wish to report a problem anywhere in the country, the number you can call is one eight six six our vote It's the the lawyers committee uh, for justice uh, based in the East Coast. They are all over the country with their volunteers taking questions, taking data where there are any kinds of um, irregularities that are occurring that do not belong in the voting places. And remember, local voters, you can get in touch with the Orange County Registrar Voters for confirmation of your information at ocvote.com or socalvotes.com, which the good Neil Kelly told us earlier in this voting season. 
seasoned voters, take someone along with you to the polls, help them get started on a lifelong effort of political engagement, of voting every election. That brings the show to a close. Next week we'll have a Veterans Day commemoration for you. Thank you very much, everybody, and thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. (laughs) 